You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. All right, if you're, if you're done meeting and greeting, um, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 18. I'm going to show you a passage. It's a parable of Jesus. Uh, Jesus told a parable. And uh, I think it's a pretty cool parable. It's Luke 18, starting in verse 9 Yes, you did catch a niner in there. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and then through 14. And this passage, I, I remember reading this passage out loud to, to a, a non-Christian. <clears throat> I was in a conversation with a non-believer, and he was asking me, how does salvation work? And he said, Doesn't, don't you just have to be good, like follow the Bible and follow what your church says to be saved? And I said, no. I said, let me read you what this uh, parable says that Jesus said one day. And so it's Luke 18, starting at verse 9 He said this, Jesus said, To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down upon everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, these robbers, evildoers, or adulterers, or even this tax collector, for I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. And then verse 13 says, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. It says, He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Verse 14 says, "I I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray this morning. Father, we do... Open ourselves up right now to you, God, to understanding more about salvation. As we talk about something that is so crucial to the Christian message, God, would you empower us to know your wisdom on how salvation works? Open our hearts and our minds that we might be able to understand it better, that we might be able to explain salvation better, that your gift is a free gift given to us by faith in your son, Jesus. And so, God, we are so honored that you do give us salvation, that we just have to believe in the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. And so, God, this morning we love you and we praise you. And everybody screamed. Amen. 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 You've probably heard this story before. It's used in a lot of sermon illustrations. I believe it was originally a Billy Graham story because the story he tells it in the first person that Billy Graham, you know who Billy Graham is, right? The great American evangelist, uh, pretty famous in secular and Christian circles. Billy Graham uh, tells a story that he was caught for speeding in this small town. The cop gave him a ticket. He went to the sheriff's office in this small town to pay the ticket. And the sheriff sitting behind the desk recognized Billy Graham. He was a Christian, and Billy Graham is just a very famous person. And he recognized Billy Graham and took the speeding ticket from him, looked at it, and sure enough, it said William Franklin Graham. He looked up, he recognized Billy, and he said, "Uh, Sir, how do you plead? Billy Graham said, I plead guilty. He wrote that verdict down in uh, in the books. And then the sheriff pulled out of his own wallet the $150 for the speeding ticket, put it in the register, closed the register, and wrote in the books, paid in full. Have you heard a story like that or that story before? 
It's, it's, a, it's a pretty famous analogy for how salvation works. It's an analogy, meaning it's, it's an analog story to explain something else, a subject that is more complicated. That's what an analogy is. And in some ways, salvation is like Jesus who paid our penalty for us, took the punishment for us, paid the penalty so that we didn't have to pay it. But in other ways, salvation is not like paying a speeding ticket. Do you have to pay God $150 in order to get saved? No, that's not the way it works. So in some ways, the analogy holds true. In other ways, the analogy falls very short. And so today, we're going to talk about atonement. And atonement is the how. The mechanics behind how in the world... Here's the question. If if you're writing down questions, we're going to answer this question today. But how in the world could God, who is perfect, who is our creator look down and point to us and say, you are righteous, you are just, you are my son, you are my daughter. How in the world can our perfect creator point to us, to whom I know that I've, I've fallen short, I know that I've sinned, I know that I'm not perfect, that I'm not righteous on my own, that I'm not just before my God, but he looks down and he calls us just, he calls us righteous. So how in the world does that happen? That's the question we're going to be answering today, and it's the talk about um, atonement. And so this whole month we've been talking about salvation, we talked about how to get saved, we talked about works and grace, remember that? Anybody? Bueller? Yes, I see that hand. Uh, remember that? We talked about, uh, Noel Goodland talked about sanctification. Remember that? We talked about witnessing and sharing our faith just this last Sunday. And so today we're really going to get into theology. We're going to get pretty deep this morning and uh, into what it means to, to be saved, how in the world that works. And so before we do that, just a few announcements. Are you cool with announcements? All right. Thank you. Uh, announcement number one is next week, Sunday School takes topics by month, and so this is the last topic of salvation. Next month is the topic of marriage and family with David Grothy, who is our marriage and family pastor. And he has been, I think I said this last time, but I just want to brag about him. He has been, for the last 13 years of his life, he has, he's been married for 30 years, and for the last 13 years of his life, He's been traveling around, going to different seminars and conferences, teaching about how to have a good marriage and a good family. And his own testimony is that he came from a family that was, that was horrible, like just a, an, an abusive family. Uh, and so he came out of that and worked on his own family, and now he has an amazing family. He preaches about family and talks about marriage. And so it will be a message that many of us in our 20s in college don't get to hear very often. We think, oh, we'll just put that off until we actually get married. Whereas there's many things that we need to know now in order to build our family for the future. Sound cool? Yeah, sounds real cool. So don't miss all next month. He's a pretty cool dude. Just my opinion. Uh, If you're new to Sunday school, there are Sunday school cards. It says, uh, welcome to Sunday school on it. First timer card. If you fill that out, give it to the cool people in the back. They will give you a little present. Uh, It's a CD uh, of some worship songs and a welcome message. And uh, today in big church, right after the Mill Sunday school, we will end and we will all go to big church because guess who's speaking? Aaron Stern, he's a pretty cool dude. He's our, he's our, if you don't know, he's the main, the mill pastor for a college in 20-somethings. And so he's going to talk about salt. Should be awesome. (laughs) You'll see what that means in a second. Um, 
I just wanted to highlight and honor someone. There's someone back there in a white shirt. His name is Joel Roberts. Do you see him? Hi, Joel. It's his birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday to you. Everybody, happy birthday to you. Joel Roberts, happy birthday, dear Joel Roberts. Happy birthday to you. He's really cool. And uh, he is, uh, he's, all embarrassed. he's hiding behind the curtain. <laughs> he, he's on our mill leadership team, and he helps us a lot with uh, stuff we do setting up, tearing down. He also is on the committee, the think tank that helps me prepare sermons for Sunday morning. So I just, you know, you got to embarrass somebody in order to honor them. So Jill Roberts. <laughs> all right. Shall we start talking about soteriology? We are going to first review soteriology. And soteriology is, if you've been coming this month, you know for sure that it is the study of salvation. And so we are looking at that, uh, the study of salvation. The study of salvation is... um, uh, relates to being saved. Sotir in the Greek means to save, to rescue out. And I just came upon, I was researching this, and I came upon just a fact that's it's kind of like a duh fact, but it was fascinating to me. And I thought that soteriology is the subject that, that uh, makes a difference, that separates religion from philosophy. Philosophy has all these ideas about how the world works and things like that. And philosophy is different from religion because philosophy doesn't really talk about how to be saved or rescued in God's image, in God's eyes. And so uh, soteriology is the subject that separates religion and philosophy. And we've been talking about, I'm going to write on the board up here, um, we've been talking about faith and works. Do you remember this talk from a couple times ago if you were here? Anybody? Bueller? <laughs> all right it's a little early i won't all right i'm gonna try to put this up here and it's gonna like magically appear come on magically appear dang it do it, do it. dude magically appear it is it working is it appearing yet oh we got we got people on it because you can't you can barely see that can you Big white thing. All right, it's working. We got we got our best people on it right now. It's Bowman. It's not his birthday though. All right, he's working on it. All right, we just had it all working, and then like once we got to work, it's working. Oh, the screensaver is going to go on. Is that the screensaver? Just just talk amongst yourselves. No big deal. Oh, yes! Oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. Round of applause for Bowman. Okay, remember how we talked about faith equals justification? Yes, plus works. And how if we have faith, we will be justified and good works will come out of that, Right? That's salvation. We've been talking about this all month. Um, that's what we spent a whole Sunday talking about just this equation. That faith equals we are justified and we will have good works come out of it. And we talked about how save, salvation is not uh, faith plus works 
equals the J for justification. Remember how we talked about that? How we don't need to have good works and faith in order to be justified. We don't need to have faith and do a bunch of stuff. We don't have to come to church. We don't have to just do all this stuff to be saved. But looking back at this equation, good works will come out of a faith. So we will love coming to church. We'll love studying the Bible if we have faith in Jesus, right? So far, so clear? Okay, and then we talked about how faith is not this. Faith, this marker's horrible, but at least you can see it up there, right? You can still see it? Okay, good. Faith equals J for justification minus works. How we can't, we can't say, oh, if you have faith, you'll be justified, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to change your life. You can still do what you want to do, say what you want to say, play how you want to play, act how you want to act. You could do anything you want. As long as, you're, as long as you have faith, you're justified. And it doesn't matter if you have works or not. And we talked about, no, you, good works will come out of a true faith. So this is clear, right? This, and this is foundational for understanding where we're going to go for atonement. And we'll actually come back to kind of explaining this equation in just a second. But I want you to discuss something. We discuss things in Sunday school every once in a while. And uh, sometimes we pass the mics. After we discuss, we're not going to pass the mics. I just want you to think about this. And you can discuss it at your table if you want. But I want to ask you this question about faith and works. And the question is, what in your own life changed after you became a Christian, after you developed your faith. Uh, for many of you, that this is part of your testimony. What changed in your life? The question is, what changed in your life after you got saved? Assuming you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you're saved by the blood of Jesus because you believe in him. What changed in your life after faith? Do you understand the question? Okay. Well, think about it and discuss it for just a second. I'm going to give you like two minutes to discuss and we're going to jump right back in. Ready, get set, go.
check, checking. Let me give you like uh, 30 more seconds to wrap up. I know that probably wasn't enough time, but... Okay, let's um, try to try to wrap up your conversations because I want to talk about uh, atonement. Everybody say atonement. Now, atonement is not to be confused with that horrible movie that came out in December 2007 with Kiera, Kiera Knightley, whatever her name is. That movie was like ten and a half hours in the movie theater. It was brutal. It's because of that movie that I now won't go see movies in the theater because I feel like if it's a bad movie, I'll be trapped there for how many hours watching a chick flick. It was horrible. It was very, yeah, it was very just a horrible experience for me. Sorry about that. So it's not atonement, not to be confused with that movie. That movie has, I don't even know what that, I I fell asleep or something. Anyways, uh, atonement. We are talking today about... um, how salvation works. And we're about to get a little theological. This is going to be very class-ish, very teaching-ish. Is that okay? I was like Facebooking some old friends from high school, and they were like, what do you do? And what are you doing now? And I said, oh, I get to teach uh, Sunday school for our college group. And he wrote back and said, oh, that must be fun to, to have all those college kids coloring, coloring books and sing Jesus Loves Me and make beaded necklaces out of macaroni. And I said, I wrote back and said, no, I don't know that we'll have time for that. We're talking about uh, soteriology, the doctrine of atonement, the imputation of Christ. So we won't have time to make macaroni necklaces. He hasn't written back, but I'm sure, sure he will. <laughs> um, so we're talking about theories of atonement. And atonement is crucial to Christianity. In fact, I found out that the word crucial actually means, comes from the cross, and so something that is crucial is like the cross is related to Christianity, something that's crucial is extremely important. And atonement is extremely important for Christian theology. It's the how of, of how does salvation work. Going back to that question, how in the world does an all-perfect God, our creator, look down, point at us and say, because you've believed, you are just, you are righteous, you are holy, you are blameless just for believing. I mean, how? In the world, does that work? And we're going to talk about that today. I think a couple times ago, to go back to this uh, whiteboard thingy, we talked about that atonement is the only word that's like a, a word that is a, is a uh, theological word in the world. At one mint. That, this marker doesn't work at all, but up there it works beautifully. Round of applause for technology. And we did talk about how I I separated on purpose because uh, atonement is an old English word that means to be at one, like the being, meant being, to be at one, to be at one with God. And so how, so the how of salvation is how in the world do we become at one with God? And um, God could have, just thinking about, 
You know, God being God, all-powerful, all-sovereign, God could have just snapped his fingers and everyone would be saved. But instead, he sent his son Jesus to die. And, and we all know, you know, if we're looking at Christianity uh, and you've been a Christian for a little while, it's kind of like a duh answer, like, oh, how does salvation work? Well, you believe in Jesus and his, his death covers you. And we just know that and we can repeat it back and we know that. But how does that work? That's really, we're, we're kind of going one step further today, getting theological and saying, okay, we all know, you know, all Christians know you're saved by your faith in Jesus. But how does that work? And so that's what we're talking about today. Uh, the next thing on your notes is, is a, a spot for uh, you to take notes on limited atonement. I'm going to talk about that for just a second and then get into that. I know that limited atonement, for, for those of you that are already theological scholars, you know that that's a term used by Calvinism and Arminianism uh, to explain who is atoned for with their sins. But limited atonement pertains to who. Who is saved? And a Cal- I'll go back to this point, but a Calvinist and an Arminius will limit their atonement uh, by some means because Christianity does not believe in universalism. That's one of the big—we talked about this, I believe, just last time, where we talked about how Christianity is totally opposed to this idea of universalism. Universalism says everyone's saved, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what you believe. Everyone's saved, no matter what. Everyone just floats up to heaven after they die. Whereas the message of the cross says—the message of Christianity says we've all fallen short. Uh, We have all sinned. We've all disrupted what God had planned for us, and we are not by any means perfect enough for it to be one with God, to be righteous and just on our own. And so the message of the cross says that not everyone is saved, only those that believe in Jesus. And there's that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Have you heard that verse before? It's John 3.16, probably one of the most uh, famous verses in all of the Bible. In that first part of the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, is a verse that some universalists jump on. They say, look, you know, I'm a Christian. I, I, I read the Bible. And they'll say, look, Jesus died for the whole world, gave his son for the whole world, right? You've heard the verse before. But what's the rest of the verse? The rest of the verse says that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in my Bible, I think, I I believe I underlined that whoever believes in him, that atonement isn't for everyone, no matter what you do, what you say, what you believe, but you have to believe in Jesus. You know that John 14, 6 also says that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a message dynamically opposed to universalism. And so, both in this, so this, this may just be extra for you, extra credit. Um, it may awaken your theological mind. For some of you, you already know the doctrines of Calvinism and Arminianism. Calvinism says God is sovereign. He, he predestines those to whom are going to be saved. Whereas Arminianism says we have free choice. We have human responsibility. And Calvinism limits atonement by saying that Christ only dies for those that are predestined, elected for salvation. And so it's limited by intent, whereas Arminianism limits the power by which Christ died for all. Because if Christ died for all, then those who reject him, that death does not have any power for them. 
Just a little extra credit. Just awakening your theological minds. If that went over your head, it's okay. Keep coming to Sunday school. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about in like a year. You'll be trained and ready. It's true. It really is. Anyways, uh, let's talk about, I'm gonna, for, for, for the rest of Sunday school, I'm going to talk about three different views of atonement. And they are in your notes. The first one, Old Testament view of atonement. The second one that we're going to talk about is early Catholic view of atonement. And then finally, the Reformation Protestant view of atonement. That's where we're going. Sound fun? Okay, yes, that that sounds fun to me too. The Old Testament view of atonement says, um, well, there was actually a day of atonement in the Old Testament. The word for day in Hebrew is yom. And and there's there's a holiday that maybe you've heard of before. It's the day of atonement, yom Kippur, yeah, lots of you guessed it. I just heard it. Yom Kippur is, even today, is the most holy, the most sacred of all Jewish holidays. The Jewish synagogues will see like a doubling or a tripling in the, in the, in the attendance um, around this time. It's kind of like the Christian Easter or Christmas, you know? Like you see all these people coming out of the woodwork that you never see any other time of the year because that, those holidays are so important. So Yom Kippur is the number one holiday for a Jewish people. And, um, and just if you're wondering, it's September 28th this year, 2009, that, that, that they will celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And you can read about the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. And it was the only day the whole year when a priest could go into the Holy of Holies, the temple had outer courts, inner courts, and they did sacrifices in these outer courts. But this day, the Day of Atonement, was the only day in which the priest could enter into the temple. Now, there's no temple today, right, in, in Israel. Uh, it was destroyed, actually, in 70 AD and has not been rebuilt. And, um, and so today, uh, Jewish people will uh, they'll fast the day before. Actually, starting the night before, and they'll fast all day up until the Yom Kippur celebrations. But in the Old Testament, back when there was a temple, there would be two goats. One goat would be called the scapegoat. Have you heard this before? And and the priest would lay his hands on the on the scapegoat, and symbolically, the whole all the sins of all the people of Israel would be put on this goat. And then you know what they would do? They would take the goat out into the desert, and the goat would die, fall off a cliff, starve to death. I mean, it's, I mean, PETA would have a fit, right? I mean, they'd be freaking out. But, and, and with all due respect, they should because that goat was innocent. That was kind of the point. Take this innocent goat. He hasn't, he hasn't done anything. You know, he's, he hasn't, doesn't have the sins of humanity upon him. But it, symbolically, those sins were placed on that goat, and then the goat was let out to die in the desert. Miserable death. Uh, another goat. So there was two goats. The other goat was killed. Once again, innocent goat killed on behalf of the sins of the people. The priest would take the blood, go into the Holy of Holies, and, and put the blood on the altar. And in a New Testament way, even in the New Testament, Romans 6.23 says that, some of you probably know this verse, that the wages of sin is death. And so in the Old Testament, Something had to die in order to cover over your sins. And we'll come back to that. But I wanted to read a New Testament perspective on the old way of doing things. And it's Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. And you, you could turn to this because I'm going to read all four verses. And it's good sometimes to see it with your own eyes and know where those passages are in the Bible. And, uh, and I, I, I specifically like to highlight them and underline them. I like writing in my margins of my Bible so I can come back to it and study it and understand it so the Word of God doesn't just sit on my bedstand, but the Word of God comes inside of me. That's why I do it. 
Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says that the law, is everybody there? Some people there? Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says that the law, and the law is the, just the Old Testament way of doing things, that the law is a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? I mean, think about it. Go back to like the goat's blood being smeared on the altar. If that goat blood on the altar really could have uh, satisfied all your sins, then why would you have to do it next year? Why would you have to do it again and again? And then it says this, for the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt the guilt of their sins. Verse three, but those sacrifices were an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So I'm I'm seeing a couple things here in this Old Testament view of atonement. I'm seeing that death covers over sin in, in the fact that it reminds us of our sin. We're reminded of our own sin when we see the, the a death of an animal killed on our behalf of sin. Um, and there, there's something about this blood that we're going to come back to, this blood of an animal that in God's, econ- God's economy means so much for salvation. But let's, let's jump ahead to uh, the early Catholic view of atonement. The early Catholic view, you could also call this just kind of like the early church view of atonement, uh, is kind of different than how we would explain salvation today. And the early church, um, you know, it's, kind of, it's I mean, everybody, and I say everybody with the air quotations, of course, everybody knows that we're saved by Jesus' death on the cross, right? Everybody knows that. But how in the world does that work? And so in the early church, not too much thought, I don't think, was given to how that works. And they came up with, it's called the ransom theory of atonement. Has anybody ever heard that before? Anybody? Bueller? Nobody? Really? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's quite popular. Well, you're going to hear about it right now. And you'll all be very, very smart on the ransom theory of atonement right after I talk about this. Because a ransom is what? Have you ever seen the really cool movie called Ransom with Mel Gibson? And it's like, is a little boy or a little girl gets kidnapped? boy, girl, I forget, gets kidnapped and then he has to pay a ransom to the kidnappers. That, that, the ransom is the price paid to get his kid back. And, and Matthew twenty twenty eight says this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be serve, served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Does that verse sound familiar? That, his, that gave his life as a ransom for many. And so the early church took that verse and said, oh, you know what that must mean? It must mean that Satan uh, owns the souls of the people on earth. And there's, there's a lot of good theology behind that, that Satan is the prince of this world. And the analogy was that Satan kidnapped humanity by their own mistake. And I was teaching this in school of worship a couple of weeks ago, and someone was like, is it kind of like Satan was prowling around uh, a park with his van with shag carpet inside, and he opened up the door, and he had like a puppy and a bunch of candy, and all these kids came running, and, <laughs> and the kids know that they're not supposed to get in the car of a stranger. Kids know that they're not supposed to talk to strangers, but all these kids get inside the van, and then he shuts the van, Satan gets back in the car and starts driving. He kidnapped a bunch of kids. And then to get those kids back, God gave his son to, to Satan in order to free those kids out of the shag carpeted van. 
And this is all just like this, 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 this student in the school of worship stood up and said all this. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and so Jesus, in this Old Testament, excuse me, in this old early church view, uh, j- the ransom of Jesus was paid to Satan. Now, there, there's some implications of theology that I think are just poorly thought through in this early Catholic view of atonement. One being that I think it gives way too much credit and power to Satan. Because Satan uh, is, is, you know, we could think about, is, was a fallen angel. God created Satan. Where did Satan come from? Was he at one with God one time in the beginning? No, Satan is just a creation of God. So God could have like just crushed Satan like an ant if he wanted to. Why would, why would you get, and so the early Catholic view of atonement gives all this power to Satan saying, oh, you know, Satan had these kids locked up and God didn't know where they were. And so he gave his son Jesus. And then Jesus dies uh, for Satan as a ransom to get these kids out of the van, get them unkidnapped humanity. You, you realize where I'm going with this analogy. And, and so, but then Jesus wasn't held in the grave, and so he died, but then he was rose, risen again, and so it was all just a big trick on Satan. And that's how the early church thought about salvation. There's a lot of problems with that, theologically. One, specifically being, it gives way too much credit, in my opinion, to Satan. And so these are, these are two views of atonement. An Old Testament view about blood of a, of a goat or a lamb or an animal satisfying uh, the death of a sin is, is covered over by a death of an animal. The early Catholic view saying that Jesus was paid as a ransom for, to Satan in order to get humanity back. And I want to take the rest of the time to explain the Reformation Protestant view of atonement. And this view uh, was obviously, if it's the Reformation view, it, it happened, it came about during the Reformation as the, the protesters, the, that's how we get our name, Protestants, those who protested against the universal or the Catholic Church broke out of it and, and developed a theology more in line, in, in our opinion, obviously, more in line with the Bible, justification by faith. And so this theory, if you're taking notes, has all to do with the blood. If you're taking notes, put the blood or, or life. And this, in some ways, goes back to the Old Testament view of atonement, but it, it radically changes. It radically um, fulfills the Old Testament way of how salvation was remembered, how salvation is done. I think I shared with you this uh, on the first Sunday of this month. We talked about how atonement uh, that death is needed for to cover over sins. So I reminded you of Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. And we talked about how Adam and Eve, when they, the first humans, when they first sinned and ate of the tree that God told them not to eat of, they, they, they were ashamed. They sinned. They, felt, they were naked and felt ashamed. And God came and he made them garments out of animal skin in order to wear, to cover over their sin and their shame. Do you remember that? Can you think of that in the Bible? That's what happened. And looking at that story, you think, well, how did they get the skin of the animal? They would have to kill it, unfortunately. And and the skin, the dead animal's skin covered over their sin. And for the first time in the whole Bible, that's the first death that you could you could look and say, yeah, an animal had to die here specifically. We know that it died here to, to get the animal skin in order to cover over the sin of those humans. And there's, there, I think there's a lot to be said about 
that the wages of sin is death, on the back of your skillet, we always have a sweet quote of the day. Not just a quote, but a sweet one. And this one comes from R.C. Sproul, who is a, a theologian still living today. He, some of his works ha, have probably, would probably be included in like the genre of like classics. Like it's a, he's written some modern day classics. You know, sometimes people categorize him with like a C.S. Lewis or something. And R.C. Sproul says that every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereignty. And so while, me, while we may say, oh, I just stole a piece of gum, no big deal. Well, stealing's a sin, and every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. Because God is good, right? God made us. God is perfect. And when we go against his goodness and his perfection, we are committing what R.C. Sproul says is a cosmic act of treason. And I like that quote because it takes how serious this act of sin is. And, and sin's a big deal. And the wages of sin is death. And I'm going to tell a quick story. It's a little gruesome, but its point hopefully will, will be the reason why I tell the story. But I was back in college. Me and my buddy were on our way to the Nickel Arcade. Anybody like Nickel Arcades? We like had these big gulps of Mountain Dew. We just laughing and joking. We had the radio like all the way up, just singing these songs. And and I remember I was actually in the passenger seat. He was in the driver's seat. Big gulp of Mountain Dew. And somebody called him on his phone. So he was just like laughing and joking and talking on his phone with this big gulp and like steering with his knee. And the radio was up. And we're not paying attention to the road. And it was beginning to be dark. It was like sunset. And uh, we were just excited and happy. It was like a Saturday night. We're just chilling. And uh, out from uh, the, uh, there was some houses, and then into the road stepped this dog, and it was like a go- like a bigger dog, like a golden retriever. And my buddy was obviously driving and talking on the phone, and he didn't see the dog in time, and hit the dog going fast. He was speeding, was listening to the radio, big gulp, cell phone, just not paying attention to the road, a mistake clearly, and he hit the dog, and the dog went off into the grass, and we stopped. And we looked at the dog, and it was just clear that the dog was dead. It was, it was bad. It was, if you've ever hit an animal, you just know like this feeling of, oh my gosh, that, that was my fault. I just, that dog died because of me. And you think about like the kids, that, you know, this, this dog probably belonged to a family. And it was very like heart-wrenching. And we're looking at this dog, like almost in shock, like, oh my gosh, that just happened. And it's our fault. We were both like laughing and joking, not paying attention to the road. And uh, a car came came behind us, and uh, and just started honking. He didn't see what happened. He just thought we were stopped, and so we were like, "What do we do?" And we were just like, "Oh, let's let's go." And so we just drove off. Probably wasn't the right thing to do. The dog probably had a collar. We could have called the owner. And so just that the rest of the night, we went to the Nickel Arcade, and it was just like, oh, I just don't feel like being funny. I don't feel like playing any games." And I actually, on the way, my buddy who was driving, he was actually driving. I wasn't. He he, he started crying. Because he hit the dog. I mean, it's just this feeling of like, I, I was dumb. I, I made a mistake. I was an idiot driving, literally. Like listening to radio, talking on the cell phone, holding a big gulp of Mountain Dew. I just was not looking at the road, not paying attention. And it was his fault, you know, our fault. I could have held the Mountain Dew for him. It was our fault that we hit that dog. And just this feeling of, you know, my mistake made that dog die, especially for him. You know, he, he actually cried that night on the way and just, you know, he didn't know what to do that his mistake killed that animal. And I just think, in the Old Testament way, I imagine, 
you know, you bring a, if you did a sin in the Old Testament, the, what you had to do was to bring a lamb or a goat or some animal to the priest, and the priest would kill it. And you'd probably be standing there watching it slowly die under the knife of a priest, slowly being bled to death. And that must have been extremely traumatic, knowing especially that it's your mistakes, your dumb sins, your imperfections that cause the death of that animal. And, and there has to, in, the, in God's economy, there has to be a death in order to cover sin. That's, that's how God, that's just the economy of God. And um, I, I want to do a quick, I'm going to go back to the whiteboard here. And this is actually another R.C. Sproul's um, analogy or illustration of how salvation works. And I, I saw this the other day and I was, I was just really, for me it brings it all together. How salvation works, how good works come out of faith, how we're justified and good works come out of this faith. And so imagine a circle and this circle represents, let's see if I go back to this. Whoops, I got a clear screen. No big deal. All right, I'm going to redraw this. Are we cool now? Let's see. Okay, this circle, is it up there? Yes, represents us. And this circle represents Christ. And our circle has been tainted by sin. And so I'm going to kind of color it in black. And so we have been, when we sin, when we make mistakes, when we are even just born into this world of doom and gloom, and we, we all of us have fallen short, even the Bible says we've fallen short of the glory of God, we've made mistakes, we have this blackened circle of what represents us. And when Christ died for us, Christ was not just an animal. Christ was not just a perfect, an innocent, a spotless lamb. Christ was God himself. And when God himself died on account of our sins and literally suffered, he became a man, literally suffered and died for our sins, then our sins uh, go to him. And this is salvation, that our sins are transferred to Christ. Christ takes them away. And so we are now uh, innocent. I'm going to try to erase this the best I can. And so we are innocent. And uh, there's Christ. I'm going to color Christ's color in with like a blue. Let's say this blue represents righteousness. And so Christ is always righteous. And um, our, our blackened sin, what you just saw, was our sin going to Christ. And he died for that sin. So we are now innocent. But R.C. Sproul asks the question. He says, does our innocence make us just? Does our innocence make us totally righteous? And R.C. Sproul would argue, no. Our, our innocent, our taking away of sin just makes us innocent. It doesn't, doesn't make us qualified to be at one with God. It doesn't make us qualified for our creator to look down and say, yes, you are righteous and just and holy and perfect. It just means that we're innocent. And so when we, when we become saved, our sins are, are taken out of our life. We become innocent. And, and the, there's this theology behind, it's called imputation. That there's a double transfer. That, that Christ's, so this bluish represents Christ's righteousness. That Christ's righteousness goes back to us. And then we become righteous with Christ's 
righteousness. So there's this double transfer, this transfer at the top, meaning that Christ takes away our sin, and furthermore, that Christ's righteousness is imputed onto us, that we become righteous when we believe. And so for, to me, it, it makes a lot of sense that this analogy makes a whole bunch of sense because when we have faith, two things happen. We do become justified, and we do inherit this righteousness that is of Christ. And so that's why we do good works. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we love coming to church. That's why we raise our hands, sing praises to the Lord. You know, you name the thing that you enjoy doing that you didn't enjoy doing before you got saved. You know, we discussed that. That things changed in your life when you became a Christian. And those things changed because Christ's work inside of you, Christ's righteousness was imputed into you. And that is how atonement works. This double transfer. And so um, that is how, that is the answer to the question, how in the world does Christ, does God himself look at us and say, you are just, you are righteous, you are God's son, you are God's daughter. It's because our sins have been forgiven and Christ's righteousness has come inside of us. I just want to close with the story of uh, going back to the school of worship. I had a lot of fun. They just graduated on Saturday, yesterday actually. And uh, I taught systematic theology for the school of worship. School of worship is here at New Life Church. A lot of students, raise your hand if you're in school. Yes, yes, I see those hands. These cool people that graduated the school of worship yesterday. And uh, you three remember it. Yeah, uh, remember that class? Um, we were all in class just a couple days before the, the final class. And at, at the beginning of every class, we would do a devotional uh, the st- every student or either two students would pair up and they would lead a devotional in, um, in uh, just a prayer or reading a scripture or a song. And we would just devote our hearts and our minds to God before learning systematic theology, which is one of my favorite topics. And, uh, and so at the beginning of the year, everyone signed up for these slots of classes of when they would do their devotional. And at the end of the class, someone had forgot that it was their turn to do a devotion. And so I said, whose turn is it? And no one was, everyone's like, oh, I don't think so. It's not my turn. And so I pulled out the piece of paper where someone had signed up and I pulled it out and I read the name of the person that was supposed to do the devotion that day. And there they were sitting right there in class and everyone's just like looking at them. Everyone's laughing and pointing at them like, you better get up there and do something. <laughs> and so he like came up and everybody's just like laughing and like, oh dude, just pull something out of your hat for a devotion. What are you going to do, man? It better be good. You know, people just yelling out everybody's laughing and joking about this this guy that has to like immediately do a devotion i mean can you imagine if i just pointed at one of you and said come up here and lead a devotion man and you're just like oh my gosh what do i do and so this kid comes up the whole class is laughing at him probably just like a nightmare you know probably like a perfect nightmare situation for anyone and he he pulls out his bible and he starts reading a passage and everyone's just smiling and laughing and pointing and he starts reading uh, a passage of scripture that has to do with christ's death and how Christ suffered. And as he read it, at the beginning of him reading it, everybody was still kind of laughing. And he started reading about Christ's death and how Christ suffered. And he started to cry. It's just the emotion of reading about what Christ did for us. And everybody's reaction was just like, ah. Everybody got extremely serious. And as you can imagine, here's this guy reading scripture and, and beginning to cry and at the end i mean as as he start as he read this passage he 
it began weeping. I mean, he was just really, just legitimately weeping while he was reading about Christ's death, and he apologized to everyone. He said, I'm so, I'm so, I'm so sorry, I just, it, I get emotional when I think about Christ's death. And it was just this powerful moment for us as a class, the school of worship class, where it was just so jovial into, yeah, Christ. That's what it's all about. Christ did die for us. He suffered so that our sins would be transferred to him. And, and he could have just snapped his fingers and made all sin go away. But instead, God himself suffered and died on our behalf. And just in this moment uh, of this class, you know, this, this guy just reading the scripture is just so powerful that, you know, it would move him to tears. And then it should. You know, I was almost convicted like, what? You know, when I read that passage, I've read it without emotion. I've read it without being moved to tears. But it should. It should move us to tears as we think about how salvation works. That its implications are that Christ really did die and suffer for us on account of our mistakes, on account of our foolishness, on account of our stupidity and sin and turning our backs on him. Christ died to cover over it. Let's pray. God, we do right now, we, we thank you for what you did on the cross. We thank you for the suffering that your blood was spilt on the ground, that you died that day so long ago. And you died on account of us. It was our mistakes, our sins. And in your economy, the wages of sin is death. And that you Jesus died for our sin. You could have done it any other way, but you chose to remain faithful to how your economy works. And you came to this world and you suffered and you died on account of our mistakes and our sin. You were perfect. We were not. And God, we remember that verse that says, while we were still dead in our sins, you died for us. God, we are so grateful for that. God, we lift you up. We lift your name up because of what you did for us, the free gift of salvation, that we don't have to earn it, that we could just know who you are, have a relationship with you, be faithful to you, and you look back at us and you say, we are holy, we are justified, we are righteous. We are your sons and daughters. God, that is, that is almost unbelievable that that amount of justification can come only through our faith. And so, God, we are just so indebted to you God, we are so in love with you because you are a good God. And God, we worship you. We leave here rejoicing today with just a soberness that you did die for our sins. But we leave here rejoicing because we are called perfect and righteous and holy in your sight. And we do love you and praise you. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Well, everybody, you're dismissed about five minutes early to go get a good seat to hear Aaron Stern over in Big Church. Peace out. We'll see you next week.